Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Han Yu, the author of Mind Thief, the story of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease, a haunting and harrowing ailment, is one of the world's most common causes of death. Alzheimer's lingers for years, with patients' outward appearance unaffected, while their cognitive functions fade away. Patients lose the ability to work and live independently, to remember and recognize. There is still no proven way to treat Alzheimer's because its causes remain unknown. Mind Thief is a comprehensive and engaging history of Alzheimer's that demystifies efforts to understand the disease. Beginning with the discovery of presenile dementia in the early 20th century, Han Yu examines over, over a century of research and controversy. She presents the leading hypotheses for what causes Alzheimer's, discusses each hypothesis, tangled origins, merits and gaps, and details their successes and failures. Yu synthesizes a vast amount of medical literature, historical studies, and media interviews, telling the grip the gripping histories of researchers' struggles while situating science in its historical, social, and cultural context. Her chronicling of the trajectory of Alzheimer's research deftly balances rich scientific detail with attention to the wider implications. In narrating the attempts to find a treatment, you also offers a critical account of research and drug development and a consideration of the philosophy of aging. Wide-ranging and accessible, Mind Thief is an important book for all readers interested in the challenge of Alzheimer's. Okay, I'm really delighted to have Han on our show. And Han, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. All right, so I would like to start by asking, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? Um, sure. Well, so I'm a university professor, so a lot of my work is, you know, teaching. Um, since the pandemic hit, I have uh, moved all of my classes online. I mean, I've taught online before, but not like all of my classes. Um, so that process has, um, you know, its own um, fair share of challenge, but also reward. Um, I do miss seeing my students. And my coworkers, my colleagues, um, and interacting in a face-to-face classroom setting. Um, but I also see the many benefits um, of online teaching. Um, primarily, I think it opens my classes to students who wouldn't otherwise be able to enroll, like students who are working professionals or who are located, you know, remotely. So I do appreciate that fact. Um, and I also think it gives me and my colleagues the opportunity to just be more invested um, in online pedagogies and trying to, 
you know, deliver our teaching um, in a changed environment. So I do appreciate that factor. That's a really good point uh, you made about uh, students who are working, professionals, for example, because, yes, nowadays uh, uh, university students are not just uh, very young young people. So perhaps maybe do you have any um, advice on how to manage that and how to uh, recruit or perhaps adapt uh, our systems to people of this demographic? Sure. So I think moving the classes online has been one of the biggest things that um, we have done here in our program. And one of the biggest things that I, I think is attracting these students because um, the working professionals have a very hectic schedule. I mean, they are primarily working during the days and their time for study is limited uh, during the weekends, um, at night. Um, so having this online format and really a uh, Almost all of my online classes are like self-paced, so we don't really have um, synchronous meetings per se. So a lot of these are asynchronous uh, content, modules, and um, activities. So that gives students a lot of flexibility, and I think that's um, that's a really interesting. Uh, I mean, that's a really important element to to draw these students in. Oh, I love the idea of asynchronous communication and meetings. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have uh, any other advice uh, for our young uh, students, perhaps, who are finding it a little bit hard to focus uh, during this time and how to follow the programs? Um, I know it's difficult and I know some mm-hmm. students are struggling. I can see some of my students are struggling too. I think, you know, a lot of the times it depends on the the study habits, maybe even the personality of a student. Some students really thrive on this kind of self-paced environment. Other students seem to be struggling a bit because they um, rely on the structure. I think, you know, just um, if somebody falls in the latter category, I think maybe just to make a schedule for yourself. Um, like in a lot of my classes, I try to make the schedule somewhat consistent, you know, on a certain day of the week, something is due. So if students are struggling with a lack of structure, maybe try to create something for themselves where it's really more you know, much like going to a class, you have to do something by Monday, by Wednesday, that may be a way to, you know, get things more um, into an organized fashion and don't fall behind. That's great advice. Excellent. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. So I'm a professor in the English department of Kansas State University. Um, And I did my graduate work at Illinois State University, uh, where I um, did an MA and also a PhD in English studies, um, focusing on technical communication. Um, And then from there, I just, um, you know, I went directly to Kansas State, where I have been uh, for going on now about 14 years. So at Kansas State, I teach um, a variety of classes uh, in technical communication and scientific communication. Um, so, you know, I also a lot of my work is about research. So research-wise, um, I have studied uh, writing assessment, intercultural technical communication, and also um, visual communication. Now, for the last, I would say, five, six, seven years or so, um, my research has primarily focused on science communication. 
um, especially public science communication and um, science visual communication. And how did you get interested in studying communication? Um, so I've always been interested in language. So that's what got me into uh, the English department and English studies. So back at Illinois State, our program has, you know, multiple types of focuses that you can choose to, you know, concentrate in. We have literature, for example. Um, we have writing. And I do think we have creative writing. I'm not 100% sure, but creative writing is a very typical component of um, English programs as well. But, you know, I don't... I mean, I love reading literature. Don't get me wrong. I, I read a lot. But it doesn't really draw me in as much as, you know, the more kind of nonfiction um, kind of communication um, in the workplace setting, in the professional setting, in the scientific setting, because I, I'm interested in making complicated content accessible. And I enjoy that process of, kind of explaining something complicated or technical to a non-expert. So that's how um, I was drawn into technical communication and then from there, science communication. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. And I'm actually interested about the visual communication. Can you maybe expand a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, I know I just said I'm drawn to language, but I'm also... I'm also, I like, you know, images, pictures, and photographs, and all that, um, and I um, I dabbled in drawing a little bit. I mean, I, mean, I took drawing classes, and watercolor, whatnot, but anyways, um, so in my experience, like, reading popular science magazines, reading newspapers, and then also uh, reading professionally, a professional science scientific writing, like writing for a peer audience, I often see, you know, a lot of these images um, that makes me, that, you know, that make me wonder, especially when in a, in a popular science communication context, you see a lot of these fantastic looking, like, for example, micrographs or, or illustrations. I always wonder if they actually do make sense to a non-expert because, a lot of them sure don't make sense to me. And, you know, I'm not a, a scientist by training, but I've, vest, I've, I've invested a lot of time and energy and I've done a lot of research in science communication. So I'm thinking I represent at least the average educated audience. And if I am not understanding it, I think a lot of people are not understanding it. And there is certainly more than just cognitive understanding. Um, there's also the emotional factor. I think a lot of these time, a lot of the times, these images are are symbolic. They have a lot of uh, emotional um, factors packed in through things like colors, through things like textures. So, in my last book, I, yeah, I think it's my last book um, on genetic visual communication. I talk a lot about how genetics is communicated visually to the public audience and the various issues that are involved in that, like the ones I just mentioned from a comprehension standpoint, are people understanding from an emotional perspective? What are we trying to say with these images? Like, you know, sometimes there are a lot of emotionally charged images, like for with GMO, you see 
people, you know, injecting fluids into a tomato. I mean, what does that mean, really?、Uh, because it's not technically correct. That's not a technically correct representation of GMO, but it it sends a lot of political, social, and emotional factors that are all just tangled together. So I think a lot of those are really interesting. So that book was、um, was my effort to try to try to understand a lot of these phenomena and try to explore what are I don't want to say better, but what might be the ideal ways to communicate science, whether genetics or others, to non-public, to non-expert public audiences through visuals, and what are some of the responsibilities or challenges that communicators face? This is absolutely salient point, especially in a big、uh, data age where、mm-hmm. we have all of these huge data sets, which are so hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So with big data,、um, then we are facing additional challenges of having to maybe using interactive visuals, using technologies, using internet,、um, and that does help solve some of the problems.、Um, but it brings its own issues、um, because. A lot of the folks who are, like for example, engineers,、um, graphic designers, have this.、Um, I'm not saying you know they're all like that, but there is a very strong tendency to think higher tech, more powerful tech,、um, equates better communication. But that's not necessarily the 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 case.、Um, a piece of interactive visual technology does not. Does not necessarily mean it's better at communicating big data. It really is what a particular user wants to get out of it, and what a particular user needs.、Um, so that brings in a lot of,、um, a, you know, a host, a, a whole lot of different complications as well. Excellent. So then, equipped with this wealth of expertise in communicating complex topics. Some may say that communicating Alzheimer's disease is one of the most complex topics there are.、Uh-huh. So, how did you get how did you get、uh, interested in that? That's a that's a really good question, and a lot of people have asked that、um, because you know I'm not a neuroscientist by training, right? I'm not a natural scientist by training. I'm a communicator. I'm a I'm a researcher and teacher of communication. So why would I go ahead and write a book about Alzheimer's, which, as you were saying, it's a super complicated topic? Well, there are there are a few reasons here, and some of them are professionally related. Some of them are personally related. So I'll start with the personal side because that's a shorter of an answer.、Um, so personally, I have an uncle who had and had a diet had had. And had died of Alzheimer's, so I I witnessed some of his um, struggles. Um, and 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 by the way, he had a, a brief appearance in my book,、uh, The Mind Thief.、Um, so from that perspective, I have always been. I don't think interest is necessarily the right word here. I guess I always just kind of wondered about this disease that I didn't really understand at the time.、Um, So that's from the personal perspective.、Um, 
from the professional side, so like I said, my research interest is um, is on public science, or one of my research interests um, is public science communication. And in my teaching, I um, I work with science students and also communication students on how to write about science. So in both my teaching and my research, I have done a lot of work on like at a theoretical level on how one should communicate or may want to communicate science to a non-expert audience. You know, like meet your audience where they are, don't talk over their heads, but don't try to dumb things down and underestimate their intelligence, right? So I, I always believe and I always teach that no matter how complex a topic is, you can always communicate it clearly, intelligently, and even interestingly, you know, if you just try. Um, and there are many strategies that you can do that, like, you know, through storytelling, metaphors, whatever. And I, and I have a, and I strongly believe that science communicators and scientists too have an obligation to, to do this because public readers have the right to know. So, so again, I've done a lot of, you know, this work on the theoretical and pedagogical level. I published articles, academic, you know, academic articles read by people like me. Um, and I've written and edited academic books, again, for people like me. And I taught them in the classroom, you know, for students. But I've never really personally done it, you know. Um, so then about four, five years ago, I thought, you know what, I want to, I want to, do it myself. Like I want to be able to practice what I preach. And I want to write a piece of science communication that is like that. You know, it's accessible, interesting, informative, and engaging for everyday readers, not just, you know, academic uh, readers. Um, and so Alzheimer's becomes a choice, well, partly because that personal connection I was just referring to, but also because just by chance, I came across something that I think quite interesting one day about Alzheimer's research. So I read, um, so I learned that there in Alzheimer's research, there are two different camps of thought or two, you know, camps of theory. Well, there are, now I know there are more than two, but back then I learned that there are two. Uh, one focus is there research on this protein called beta amyloid that accumulates in the Alzheimer's brain. So this group is given the nickname, the Baptists. So baptism, Baptists comes from the initials of beta amyloid protein, BAP. Um, and then there is the other group that research that, that are referred to or given the nickname of Taoists, like, you know, from the Chinese Taoism, but it's not really actually only, you know, it's not even spelled Taoist, T-A-O-I-S-M, it's spelled T-A-U-I-S-M. This nickname comes from the fact that they study another protein called Tau, T-A-U, that also accumulates in the Alzheimer's brain. So you've got this very, from what I, you know, what I think, very interesting you know, Western baptism versus Eastern Taoism, this kind of competition, you know, fight going on to solve the mystery of Alzheimer's. And I thought that was just so, so cool. I mean, it's, that's the kind of story, drama, if you will, you know, that would 
pull a non-expert reader into something that's seemingly dry, seemingly really technical. So I just started, you know, looking into that. And and here's the other thing, I think, that's more on the personal uh, uh, reason side. I have this um, obsessive kind of compulsive personality. So once I start something, I don't usually, I don't often let go. So I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole and I just kept digging and I kept writing. I mean, even today, when I look back, I'm kind of horrified that I took the chance because I invested like four or five years of my time on this really, really complicated topic that I'm not an expert on. And all the time, I didn't know it it was going to be published or not. I mean, I just, um, I mean, I could have started, I guess, by writing smaller pieces. Um, That's actually an advice given to me by some, um, some, some colleagues, some folks um, that, you know, smaller pieces that would probably uh, get me out there, you know, give me a reputation and that would be less of a risk. And probably I should have, (laughs) I don't know. But I think that's just the way they, that's just the way I am. I'm, the more I researched, the more I think the more I thought I had to say and I just couldn't stop I just couldn't stop myself I just thought you know in the back of my mind I suppose that all of these are really interesting stories that I'm discovering and I'm just I'm just writing and I'll just focus on get it you know get it out of my head and then I'll worry about hoping to get it published once I'm done so I'm, I am very glad and relieved that Columbia University Press picked it up. Um, otherwise, it would be, you know, it would be bad. Um, but, I, you know, so that's, uh, that's how the, the book, you know, came about. I don't, I don't, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so uh, the question I have is, as you, you were brave enough to, to take on such an enormous project, What's really appealing is the way you synthesize it, all the different epochs, eras, and then different themes all together about the disease itself. So it, it's a very multifaceted approach to looking at the disease. So can you uh, perhaps describe us the early days of, uh, of uh, research and uh, how it was first found and the first patient Sure. Yeah. So, um, so any big projects, especially, but any project, um, is hard in the early days um, when you really don't know what you're trying to, like, when you you, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't really know what you want to get out of it and what you want to write about. So. I just started by reading books about Alzheimer's, um, not, you know, the neuroscience textbooks or, you know, um, medical literature. So I read several books, um, more of the popular science communication side um, to just get a handle of the disease. Um, And then I just kind of started to list out a long, long list of, as I keep reading, I keep listing all these long, long list of topics that I think I might want to talk about or getting to. And then as you keep reading, the ideas start to concentrate toward a shorter list of things that I think there 
there are enough materials to dig in. There are enough interesting stories to tell. So I gradually narrowed those down. And then um, at a point when I feel like I've, I'm starting to get repeat information, like I'm a little saturated uh, in the breadth of the knowledge, I started to you know, tackle one one by one. And that's how you start to get deeper into each topic. That's where I started to get into medical literature, started to read uh, media reports. Um, and then, um, and it's a very, it's difficult to, to describe the, the, the whole process because I certainly don't necessarily have an outline, I would say, going in. I mean, I sort of have a plan, but it's a moving target. And you keep going, you keep finding interesting stories that you want to tell. And then the thing just kind of organically grew. And I, I do, I do want to say, um, I, I, I talk to friends, I talk to colleagues about what I'm doing. And I and there, there are several great um, creative writers in my department. And we kind of talked about what may be a good way to create a narrative, like an overall n- narrative arc in the book. And, and, and a lot of those conversations sort of helped me to sift through ideas as well. Um, and certainly, I think years of and years and years of academic training also gave me the uh, skill and um, helped me to develop the skill to read a lot of literature and synthesize it so that's um that's certainly something i relied on you have to be able to at a certain point when reading you know a, a piece of medical literature being able to synthesize the key points of what you want and don't get buried in the methodologies or every single piece of result. And, and, and truth be told, I don't understand every single piece of result or every single piece of methodology. But I think years of training in technical communication has given me the ability to synthesize a key point that I want. So that's really helpful too. That's a really excellent description uh, as a, like, like a roadmap really to writing these uh, sorts of uh, uh, works. So thank you very much for this. <laughs> so do you have any uh, sort of tips on avoiding bias in your choice of the topics to include or exclude? As you said, you went through such a huge amount of different themes. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. So once again, like I said earlier, I think I have a bit of a compulsive and obsessive personality. So sometimes I think that's a, a good thing for a researcher and for a writer because honestly, I'm, I just can't get past it myself if I wasn't being thorough. Like, like I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, so to speak. So I try to be comprehensive in my research. Um, and then that's the, but here's also the other thing about the advantage of a non-scientist writing about science for a public audience because I don't have a stake in the research, you know? I'm not a Taoist. I'm not a Baptist. I don't, like, I don't care if one theory rises to the top and becomes a paradigm. So from my perspective, I don't really have an interest in that competition. Um, I look at the studies and I assess from my perspective 
which ones are worth telling about, and which ones have. And certainly, there's also that element that I, I referenced before that that inherent interest for a non like a non expert audience. So I assess that. And I make decision, but I do. I do want to say that I I read a lot, and I and I can and I can sleep at night that I have done my due diligence of trying to be non biased. Because when some of the books I have read that you know talks about Alzheimer's and targets like a non expert audience, I do think that they are a bit biased when they are written by researchers themselves. So you can see a lot of the personal interests come in that they would, I mean, it's natural, right? We all do that, that they would want to um, demonstrate the significance of their own particular branch of research or angle of research or particular perspectives on the disease. Um, and I think those are useful too. That, you know, goes to show the, uh, the, the range of research that goes to show the nature of scientific investigation. But I think for a non-expert like myself to write it, um, we can largely avoid that sort of, you know, if you want to call it quote unquote bias. Yes, and this is an uh, absolutely critical uh, point, and I think that's one of the really strengths of uh, The Mind Thief, is that you approach it from the non-stake, as you say, point point of view. Um, so um, let's delve into a few of those themes. So as you were doing your in-depth research, can you tell us uh, what have you discovered about the early history of Alzheimer's? Sure. So, so if we want to start from the very beginning, then we have that first patient um, from um, Germany, um, August Dieter. Um, so we don't know too much about her. I mean, we know about her, but comparatively speaking, we don't know much about her. I mean, we know a lot about the doctor who treated her and after whom the disease was named Dr. Alois Alzheimer. But we know very little about the patient. And I think that's a, an unfortunate pattern when it comes to medicine or science. The patients, the research subjects, always fade into the background, becoming little more than this, you know, carriers of symptoms and diseases that we are interested in studying. Um, and that hides the social and humanistic sides of science and medicine, which is one of the things I really want to get out in the book, that science is a complex enterprise that has a lot of social and humanistic and economic um, aspects. But anyways, so um, so we have this, uh, this, this woman uh, who is the first um, patient to have been di- uh, diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, so she was born and raised um, in Kassel, Germany. Her father died young, supposedly from, I think, a skin infection, and her mother died from pneumonia. So she married a um, railway clerk, Carl, Carl Dieter, in her early 20s when she married. And then in her early 50s, and for all those years, she was fine, right? But then in her 50s, in her early 50s, Auguste started to show symptoms of memory loss, personality change, just behavior disturbances, just kind of acting weird, you know, so to speak. So she was sent um, 
to the um, to an institution in Frankfurt called uh, the Institution for the Mentally Ill and Epileptics. And interestingly enough, that institution was known locally as the Castle of the Insane. So there at the castle is when she met Dr. Alois Alzheimer, who was working there. So Dr. Alzheimer personally examined Auguste and kind of documented her mental state. And he was confused and puzzled by her symptoms. You know, back then it was known that old age can bring mental deterioration, but she was only 50, 51, hardly that old. So, so the doctors were just confused about why is she, why was she acting the way she was? And she deteriorated, she continued to deteriorate and quickly while at the castle. She was there for about four years, I think. And then she was confused about where she was. She don't remember, she doesn't remember the fact that she, you know, she had a husband. She couldn't read or write or speak. And she I think hallucinated and was sometimes violent. Um, so, and then she died, I think in 1906. Um, and then, so Dr. Alois Alzheimer performed an autopsy on her. She, he has actually already left the institution, but he was able to get the sample and, um, and do an autopsy on the patient and found two anomalies, two anomalies in the brain. One is he saw neurons in various stages being destroyed by this tiny by these tiny fibers that seem to be growing from us from inside the neuron that's coming out of the neuron so these are what we know today as tall tangles so these are the targets of the the tallest the tall tangles and tallest uh, a protein and then the, the the other thing that he saw is plaques or deposits the many many plaques of this at the time, what he called an unknown substance. Today, we know they're a beta amyloid. So another fragment, uh, a protein fragment. So these are the, the research focus on the, of the Baptists. Um, so he saw these two things, which although they're not necessarily novel findings at the time, they've been found before, but their combined presence together in this one brain in a 50-year a 50-some-year-old woman who seems to have just lost all her mental capabilities, all of that combination was unique. And that made Alzheimer's think that probably he's stumbled upon or discovered something unique, something that did not fit into the mental illnesses known at the time. So, but he didn't actually go ahead and say, well, I found uh, a disease called Alzheimer's. He, from what I've read, you know, the, the, um, all the literatures I've read about uh, Alois Alzheimer's, he was a very modest person. Um, so he didn't even declare he found a new disease. I think he published his finding under the title of something like a unique disease or something like that. But his boss, um, who is a very renowned psychiatrist, Emil Kriplin, he is the one who actually named the disease. I think in one of his um, best-selling psychiatry textbook a few years later, um, he named this new disease and named it after um, Alzheimer's. So, so that's why, you know, it becomes known as Alzheimer's disease. 
And it's actually an interesting piece of history, too, because the naming of the disease was a little bit controversial, because at the time, there weren't a lot of the cases being known yet. So some people kind of critiqued ML trying to pull a publicity stunt, um, you know, to to gain some social capital, you know, for his own clinic because he was naming it after one of his employees. Um, so that's the, I guess that's the very, very start of the early history of the disease. So as you mentioned, they, there haven't actually been that many cases um, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. So uh, when did it start picking up and where when did people start getting interested in studying AD? Sure. So, um, so a lot of that, so from the discovery of the disease, like you said, in the early 20th century to, I think, right about 1970s, there is literally nothing happening about it. Hmm. Now, a lot of the um, that this earlier sort of development, I'm focusing primarily on the U.S. Um, because that's where I live. But I think that's true um, of the research stage as a whole. Um, so very little happened between 19, you know, 1906 to 1960. It's only in the about 1970s and then really 80s that we started to see more research about it. And then really in the 1990s, was um, the hunt for the early onset genetic mutation that we really started to see the research picking up and really increase exponentially from there. So it's actually fascinating to think about it because the disease has always been there and then the name was coined in, you know, 1910 or thereabout. Um, so why are we not studying it? The thing is, prior to about 1970s, we thought that Alzheimer's, um, you know, epitomized by this 50-year-old Auguste Dieter is a is the so-called pre-senile dementia. So she is not senile. So she's pre-senile and she's demented. Mm-hmm. And this pre-senile dementia was supposed to be very rare, right? You know, we, like I said, there are not a lot of cases when we created this name, Alzheimer's disease. And rare diseases don't exactly attract research attention because, you know, not many people are affected by it. If you got a drug for it, you're not going to get a lot of profit for it either. So if something is rare, it's not studied. Um, so senior dementia, uh, senior dementia, though, is not rare, was not rare back then. But people, people have interesting thoughts about, different thoughts about it, too. A lot of people think back then that senile dementia is just part of aging. It's, you know, if you want to go that way, it's natural, it's inevitable. And if it's inevitable, then we we don't need to study it. We don't need to study it. Studying it is just a waste of time. So, so either way, there's no interest in Alzheimer's. So the situation started to change um, in the late 60s when some researchers from Newcastle University in UK did a study to see if the number of the brain plaques in the brain um, is related to dementia. So they did interview studies and cognitive tests on uh, participants to assess um, their the existence of dementia among 
these elderly participants. And when the participants died, passed away, they did、um, autopsies to see how many plaques can be found in their brains. And the studies show that there is a consistent, if not you know always precise, connection between the number of plaques in the brain and the extent of their dementia. So this suggests that dementia corresponds to brain abnormalities, and these abnormalities are not inevitable. At least not, you know, quantitatively, because some people have more of them, some people have less of them. So, in other words, in old age, dementia is not inevitable, and it's not necessary, and, and is a disease. So, so from there, then researchers started to argue that what Augusta Dieter had, the so-called pre-senile dementia. Is essentially the same as senile dementia because they share the same brain pathologies. You've got the beta amyloid plaques, you've got the tall tangles, and they also have the same clinical symptoms like memory loss, like pr- confusion, personality change, and so forth. Their only difference is the age of onset. When does it happen? Other than that, there's no real differences. So these researchers argue. They're just the same. It's the same disease, and that that argument is is profound because if pre-senile dementia is the same as senile dementia, and both are just Alzheimer's, then none of it's normal. Then studying it won't be a waste of time. And if Alzheimer's included the senile form, or what we call today the late onset type. As well as the pre-senile form, or what we call today the early onset type, then it's not rare. I mean, there are hundreds and thousands of people, even back then in the 60s and 70s, that are affected by it. So that's why it becomes sort of a, a major killer and become a a, a, a national in- research interest. Um, well, I should I should backpedal a little bit and say these are just what happens on the you know research front. But one of the things I try to really get out in the book is that science is a social enterprise. You know, it's situated in specific social, economic, and political contexts, and we have got to look at science by looking at the big picture. So I don't think I think it's naive to think you know just a handful of researchers writing all these discoveries up in medical literature is going to make a difference to make an unknown disease into a national interest. So at least in the U.S., there are. Quite a quite a bit of a political movements that happened that actually made Alzheimer's a you know a household name.、Um, so notably,、um, in 1974, I think、uh, we we had the National Institute of Aging (NIA) that was established, and originally the NIA was charged to research any and all problems of old age, but this very vague sort of charge. Was not gonna garner government funding, so the NIA decided that they were gonna make Alzheimer's their focus to attract, you know, so to speak, the interest of political forces. And 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 you know, to be fair, it's not like they were just picking up a rare neurological disease. It it is, you know, as research of the time was showing, 
a widely spread um, disease. So, but they just really made it like a political sort of focus and agenda item and put it out there um, in the spotlight. And I also very smartly, I think, cultivated the social group that could, you know, so to speak, talk about the human sufferings of Alzheimer's and catch the attention of Congress. So at the time, we already had grassroots um, Alzheimer's groups um, formed mostly by family members of Alzheimer's patients that are looking for support or information. So NIA put these groups into conversations with each other and and suggested or urged them to form a, a national organization with you know stronger presences you know more you know political power um, and that was today's Alzheimer's Association. I mean it it was they went by a different name when they first established, but then it later changed to Alzheimer's Association. So the association grew just rapidly and established chapters across the nation. You know like with many volunteers. So that became a really strong voice in outreach and also just lobbying for favorable research, you know, policies and support. So that really also helped to to put Alzheimer's on this research agenda for the nation. And interesting enough, as I talked about in the book, um, the growth, the rapid growth of the association was not without some interesting publicity stunts in the early years as well. So, you know, just a lot of interesting political social factors that went in hand in hand, I think, with this so-called, you know, pure scientific research to make um, Alzheimer's uh, a more of a, a research focus. Interesting. Um, and yes, as you describe, uh, perhaps it was also accompanied by the change in perspective on, on how we view aging as it is, that you don't have to deteriorate, deteriorate with the age necessarily. So uh, as this political and social movement uh, brought public interest to the disease, uh, to the disorder, uh, it also brought in funding, hasn't it? So what sort of research uh, was being funded uh, in the early, uh, in, in the 70s and 80s? And what sort, sort of avenues of research it uh, uh, ultimately ended, uh, uh, sort of ended up in? Sure. So in the early days with the help and funding of NIA, yeah, the research funding just grew exponentially within years. And the early studies primarily looked at um, neurotransmitters involved in Alzheimer's disease. So neurotransmitters are, you know, chemical messengers that transfer signals or impulses from neurons to neurons. And there are multiple types of transmitters out there. Um, in the Alzheimer's brain, early researchers primarily focused on this certain neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And they found that acetylcholine is reduced in the Alzheimer's brain. Um, and then also the other, another one called glutamate. And glutamate is sort of overabundant in the Alzheimer's brain. And they found that neither is a good thing. If there's not a, in the, there is not enough um, acetylcholine, then it's, it stores, as I said, you know, the neurotransmitters transmit impulses between neurons, right? So if, there, if there's not enough of them, then it stores this relay of message, so to speak, which uh, researchers think causes the memory to break down and cognition to 
kind of falter. Um, so from there, they develop drugs that protect um, acetylcholin. And also from the glutamate standpoint, too much of it is actually a bad thing too, because glutamate is a very powerful neurotransmitter. If, if you've got too much of it, you can overexcite the neurons to the point of exhaustion and death. So, so from there, they developed um, drugs that can inhibit um, glutamate. So these early studies actually pretty quickly led to uh, uh, several FDA-approved Alzheimer's drugs. These are the drugs that, you know, they either protect acetylcholine or inhibit glutamate. And these are the standard drugs that we still use today. Since then, the US, in the U.S., FDA has not approved any other new drugs for Alzheimer's. So these are the drugs we still use today. And they, it's interesting to think that they grew out of, you know, those early days when we barely when we barely really knew anything about Alzheimer's, we barely mm. knew anything about beta amyloid or tall, any of the other things that we later research about. But we got these drugs and they, we're still using them today. But the thing though is that these drugs are all palliative. So they do not cure Alzheimer's. So they don't even you know, really treat it. They don't stop the, the progression of the disease. They only kind of, they're like a bandage, right? They reduce symptoms and only marginally and temporarily at that. Different people responded to a little differently. Some people respond a little better than others. So, so they're not really a cure. But still, like I said, their success is really impressive, um, especially for coming out of you know earlier pioneer work. And I think these um, earlier successes really help to promote subsequent research and it kind of gives us a hope that you know there are things that can be done about the disease. Yeah, so those are the, you know, the early, the early sort of interests. Interesting. So as we develop new technologies, of course, it's inevitable for us to find something new, some sort of uh, a new target to target some molecular um, aims for us to look into. And whether they're relevant is another question, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. a question of verification. So what sort of uh, targets came up with the development of new approaches? Right. So um, so one of the things, so um, one of the research paradigms, as I mentioned, is one of the, uh, one of those two proteins. So beta amyloid still represents the research paradigm of Alzheimer's research. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the TAW in um, research that focuses on looking at TAW. Um, so the idea is because these two proteins are, fragments accumulate in the Alzheimer's brain and you can plainly see them, they must be somehow responsible for the disease. So these are the two research camps that look at how can we somehow get rid of them, whether prevent them from accumulating in the first place or get rid of them once they accumulate. So those are uh, two major research focus. And I mean, we, we went through different ways of trying to curb these two proteins, inhibit them, for example. But I would say right now, the big focus is on the vaccines. Um, so we have, you know, um, beta amyloid vaccines. We have uh, tall vaccines. And these are 
efforts they try to develop antibodies in the patient's uh, 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 you know body so that they can wipe out, so to speak, the abnormal beta amyloid and tau, so that we are, so to speak, you know, vaccinated against uh, Alzheimer's, even though it's an interesting concept, because, you know, Alzheimer's is not an infectious disease. And typically, when we say, you know, and when we talk about vaccine, we're referencing infectious disease, such as COVID-19. But because the way beta amyloid and tau accumulate and spread in the brain, you can say, I mean, it's not precise to say they're infectious, but they spread, right? So if you can sort of knock them out and wipe them out, maybe that'll that'll save the brain. So that's one of the key research focus um, today. And I would say there's also a lot of research interest in, in looking at the metabolism from the metabolism of the brain to think about whether Alzheimer's may be caused by um, inefficient use of glucose. So there's not enough energy being produced in the brain to support cognitive you know, activities. Or maybe mitochondria, which is this you know, powerhouse of the cell that utilize nutrients to output energy. Maybe mitochondria is somehow, are somehow breaking down and thereby, again, not providing the brain with enough juice to run on, so to speak. So there are a lot of research looking into those as well. Interesting. So, as you mentioned, there are several uh, um, sort of main uh, targets. There are like a beta tau, uh, which is the um, uh, protein-based hypothesis uh, of uh, degeneration, and then the metabolic uh, one, which is really interesting, especially as we have the possibility to look at the increasing number of patients who have the pathology, but maybe don't have the dementia um, uh, overall. So, uh, what targets do you find in your research are more promising and which ones have been abandoned? That's a really interesting question. Mm. The ones that I have been focusing on in the book um, are the ones that are sort of what I consider the primary uh, ones that hold the most promise. Um, so mm. there are the, you know, the study of beta, uh, beta amyloid tall uh, and, and mitochondria and uh, insulin. So they're still, I would say, ongoing. And in my epilogue, I did talk about a few research approaches that are either just at the very, very beginning of their, you know, attempt, or just from my perspective, not a not very, um, not very likely. So, for example, people do talk about maybe um, Alzheimer's is caused by viral or bacteria infection, and their you know different research has generated a long list of suspected viruses and bacteria, but there's just not enough um, evidence. Mm-hmm. And like I said. Alzheimer's is not an infectious disease in the traditional sense of thinking about infection, you know. So the most telling example is blood transfusion doesn't cause Alzheimer's. Um, so those studies, are, I, I, those research perspectives, I thought, are a bit out there. Um, but the other ones um, that I kind of talked about in the main body of the, of the book, I think each has its own strength. 
But that's also the thing. Each has its own issues. I mean, a lot of the researchers, if they're not studying beta amyloid, they can be a little bitter because beta amyloid or baptism, uh, if we want to go by the nickname, is is very much the research paradigm of Alzheimer's, at least today. And by paradigm, I mean it's the main research focus. It's the focus that's getting the most researchers, the most young scholars trained in it, right? So it's the camp that's getting the most funding in it. It's the camp that's getting probably the most publicity for it. So it just self-perpetuate itself um, and keep going and keeps going. And I think some other researchers are a little bitter about that fact because they don't think it's the real cause of the disease, primarily because a lot of the drug trials today are anti-beta amyloid drugs, drug trials, and they keep failing. Um, so people are saying, well, you know, we have got to stop and look elsewhere. And that's sort of the, the research, the, the source, source of the, the picture I, um, I create in the book is that I want to talk about the paradigm early on. And I talk about the, the issues with the paradigm and talk about how these different other research focuses may actually overthrow the paradigm. But then here's the thing, though, because it's, it's just so complicated mm. and interesting. The paradigm becomes a paradigm because it has a lot going for it. I mean, f- looking from outside in, I don't have a stake in that. I'm not a Baptist. But just by looking at the research from a variety of angles, especially from the genetics angle, the beta amyloid theory has a lot going for it that a lot of the other theories don't. So I understand that it becomes a research paradigm. But I also understand that science can be the self-perpetuating, you know, the wheel keeps turning on its own once it's Turn, once it's going, it's a huge enterprise that you can't really turn it around very easily because people's invested decades of work in this and huge amounts of money in studying beta amyloid. They're not going to want to turn. Um, so it's it's complicated. And these other research camps, they also have, some of them have very interesting evidence going for them, but they, are, they have their own issues as well. So like the, the, the study of mitochondria, for example, you know, so mitochondria, like, you know, I said, they're the so-called powerhouses of the cell, right? It's involving the cell's aerobic uh, metabolism, turning nutrients into energy for cells to use. So the mitochondria hypothesis thinks that in the Alzheimer's brain, we have aging and effectively just defunct mitochondria, dysfunctional mitochondria that are not properly outputting energy and if there's not enough in the, in, the, in the enough energy in the brain the neurons just kind of shut down and cognitive functions are lost so it's a very charming and straightforward theory you go like oh of course we just don't have enough energy and there's something very interesting about this theory that just makes you wonder if oh that seems like really a plausible explanation so so Alzheimer's or the late onset type of Alzheimer's is not inherited, right? So we don't have, you know, mutations that, you know, that um, make somebody inherit the late onset Alzheimer's. The early onset is, but the late onset is not. Um, Mm. But with the late onset Alzheimer's, there is this very interesting pattern that we have noticed long ago. 
That is, if a patient has a parent who also has Alzheimer's, that parent is more likely to be the mother of the patient than the father of the patient. In other words, if you want to flip that around, you can say that mothers seem to contribute more of a risk, not certainty, but risk than fathers do mm-hmm. So for Alzheimer's. So why is that so? Well, this kind of hints at mitochondria because mitochondria are inherited exclusively from our mothers. So it would kind of make sense that maybe something was wrong in the mitochondrial DNA that we inherited from our mothers that allows this disease more of a chance to kind of get passed down from mitochondria. But then the problem is we don't have any definitive findings about mitochondrial DNA that, you know, like a a mutation or some sort of a a culprit that has been found to, um, to make, you know, somebody more liable to develop Alzheimer's, um, more likely to develop Alzheimer's. I mean, there's some, there's some mutations that have been reported to be more common in Alzheimer's patients, but then there's plenty of conflicting evidence. So it's things like that that just makes it interesting to think about the current research paradigm. I mean, we, we think there's a, you know, beta amyloid research paradigm, and a lot of the other research camps sort of attacked it as this, you know, conservative um, camp that's pulling back the progressive research of Alzheimer's. But beta amyloid theory has a lot going on for it. And I think sometimes maybe we are setting it up as a straw man to attack when it's really is not. And all these other theories have their own gaps and issues as well. Um, More gaps and issues a lot of the times. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's answering your question. I don't know where we, we got from here, but, um, I hope that makes sense. Um, yes, for sure. And I think you're also drawing a really important point here that, um, uh, scientists that are really found refreshing in a book, your outsider perspective, as you say, but also we know that scientists tend to get a little bit too focused perhaps on uh, what they're studying or on one on one theory, which then gets perpetually funded. But also, I think the public needs uh, needs to realize that they are also stakeholders in this. So they, they have a say as patients, as uh, carers. They also have the say of where the funding goes. And perhaps uh, if the public are really interested in uh, these more novel, uh, novel hypotheses being investigated, uh, we're also listening to to them. So, yeah, I think it's a really important point. Well, as you mentioned earlier, unfortunately, there is no cure for this uh, really horrifying uh, condition. And uh, there's all, only a palliative care. But perhaps you have some um, uh, sort of positive message uh, for the families who are sufferers or have somebody in their family who are suffering from disease? Sure. So so we don't have a cure today. Um, so based from population studies, which are, you know, just observing, not intervening, like was a clinical trial, but based on population studies, um, there is strong evidence that an enriched lifestyle will slow 
down cognitive decline and potentially prevent Alzheimer's. And there's a there's a rich body of study that have been done, and there's strong evidence there. So, to understand what enrichment means, um, let's use the the example of the of mice um, at cognitive um, research labs. So. Mice in these labs can kind of wind up with very different lives. Some live solitarily in small cages. They have food to eat. They have water to drink, but essentially nothing else. Others are putting these fancy, huge, you know, rodent houses like with fellow mice, and they have running wheels that they can run. Uh, they have toys that they can kind of play with, and the toys are changed every once in a while, so they are kind of maintain their novelty, so they are mentally stimulated, and all that wonderful things. So when researchers then kind of compared the cognitive performance of these different mice, they found that the mice, the the, the mice that lived so-called richly, you know, was running ex, you know, running wheels to exercise on, was fellow you know, mice to play with, and then toys to kind of stimulate their brains, they consistently perform better in their mental, you know, cognitive performance. And we observe similar things with people through what I um, said earlier, these population studies. When we follow people for years, we realize that people who have more mental stimulation who have more social engagements with fellow humans, not mice, fellow humans, and who um, exercise physically are more likely to um, preserve their cognitive abilities and stall or prevent Alzheimer's or dementia. So again, these are not clinical trials. So we cannot say, you know, in this precise, you know, with this one particular activity, Doing it, you know, 20 minutes a day for how many days would cure you or prevent. So we cannot say that. But these kinds of things are difficult to test in the lab because they're not chemical molecules. It can be purified and tested. So what I would say is judging by existing evidence and in the absence of a truly effective drug, that's the best we can do. You know, go read a book. Go, you know, go to a math, you know, after the pandemic, of course, um, go travel with friends, go to a, you know, community college class, learn chess, learn ballroom dancing, whatever. Live life to the fullest. That, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do anyways, right? So if, and if that ends up saving the brain, that's just bonus. So that's what I would say that we should do, you know, just uh, go out and, Explore and enjoy and live life to the fullest. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, that's an excellent advice. Absolutely. No, you got me worried a little bit. Perhaps I should uh, uh, slow down on building houses and furniture for my guinea pigs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get a bit too smart. I'm going to start plotting, taking over the world. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Han, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us what you're currently working on? Um, sure. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm currently working on another book, um, and I think the topic may um, surprise you. Or it's a complete departure from Alzheimer's, and I think it may strike people as kind of an odd choice when they first hear it. But that's kind of what I was, you know, going for. And I want to write an unexpected, surprising, and kind of fun, kind of quirky book. 
Okay, so the topic is the human knee. Um, so the human knee, as I talk about in this new book, is really underappreciated. I mean, we think it's a very simple joint, like much less complicated than the brain. Well, I'm not saying the knee is more complicated than the brain, but it's certainly not simple like at all. So, and as with mm. Alzheimer's, we have knee problems affect many, many people, me personally as well. So that's sort of a personal, you know, inspiration coming out. Um, and there are a lot of unknowns about the knee's anatomy, its evolution, how we are treating knee problems. And also as with Mind Thief, the book is not just a book about science. It has a lot of social cultural elements in it. So for example, I talk about, you know, how knee, um, the role of knee in fashion. Um, I talk about um, kneeling as a social, uh, cultural, and political gesture. Just um, a lot of interesting stuff in that um, in that book. So I'm um, I'm I'm hoping. I hope, fingers crossed, that I can finish writing it sometime maybe next year. And we're currently um, proposing it to publishers. So hopefully. Shortly after, it'll be a, it'll be available to the public. That sounds super interesting. Oh, really looking forward to you. it. Hopefully, you can come uh, uh, over again and talk about that. As oh, well. I'd be I'd be delighted to. So, where our listeners can find more information about your work and also the book. Um, so, um, if you search for my name, Hong Yu, on the Kansas State University website uh, where I work, you'll be able to see my sort of a profile and some of my um, other publications. But as far as Mind, Mind Thief, the story of Alzheimer's is concerned, I think it's available on Amazon. Um, I'm probably from other book retailers as well, and certainly on Columbia University Press's website. So, and um, I think it's out there. I have friends who are reading, so... <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much for com coming over today. It was absolute delight. I've learned so much. Oh, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I really had a good time. <laughs>